Hey, it's Otis here. Before we get to the bedtime reading, I wanted to let you know that I just launched a brand new show. It's called The Daily Book Club, a daytime companion to Sleepy, where you hear entire books one chapter at a time, one day at a time. Simple as that. So if Sleepy is how you uh, wind down your day, The Daily Book Club is a great way to start your day. There's new episodes daily. Uh, I read in a slightly peppier voice so that you can get really lost in these amazing stories that have stood the test of time. Or, just like Sleepy, you can sit back and relax and zone out to a good book. The first book we'll be reading is The Enchanted April by Elizabeth Von Arnhem. Story is, in the 1920s, four women unfulfilled with life take a chance and abscond to a dreamy medieval Italian castle. It's a story dripping with wisteria, the beauty of solitude, and an unlikely pursuit of joy in Portofino, Italy. I think that this is a perfect story for the season, and you can hear it now. Find The Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. This show has been a long time coming, and I'm so excited to bring you even more stories. So go subscribe to The Daily Book Club to hear what happens next. Thanks. This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well, and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high-quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones, they have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included. And there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. A podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. 
I have got a wonderful snoozy bedtime story for you tonight. But before we get to tonight's reading, I just want to thank all of our patrons on Patreon.com. Tone Nipperud, C.L., Irma Legrande, Leanne Pentecost, and Kaya Oaks. Thank you all so, so much for being a part of making this show. And for those of you who don't know, all the names that I just read are brand new supporters of the Sleepy Podcast on Patreon.com, which is a really great site where you can go on and support creators of the work that you like. So if the Sleepy Podcast has maybe helped you wake up a little more refreshed the next day, or maybe you just get to bed early or look forward to hearing a good story on the Sleepy Podcast, maybe consider going to patreon.com slash sleepyradio and giving even a dollar a month. It goes a really long way. And of course, as soon as you donate, I'll read your name in the opening credits of the next show so you can be emblazoned on the halls of the Sleepy Podcast forevermore. So if you'd like to be directly a part of making this show by supporting it, go to patreon.com slash sleepyradio. That's patreon.com slash sleepyradio. And as always, the music that you're hearing is by my good friend James Lipkowski, and the cover art for Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan. It is almost the new year. I hope you all had a very, very Merry Christmas and enjoyed the uh, reading of Old Christmas by Washington Irving. I finished the whole book. It was so great. What an amazing writer. So I figured for our last episode of 2019, I was going to read Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. I don't know why, but December always makes me think of Dickens, probably because he wrote Christmas Carol. Um, And I usually associate him with wintry, romantic, kind of nostalgic times. Which is ironic because I'm currently recording this from the streets of New Orleans. And it is not wintry. (laughs) It is romantic. um, But it is not wintry. It is definitely nostalgic. It's pretty warm right now. Which is exactly what I left Vermont looking for. Still, Dickens holds a special place in my heart for December. And... I don't know, the title, Great Expectations, I think uh, is suiting for the turn of a year. Starting the new year with great expectations for yourself. Maybe making resolutions, if that's a thing that you do. Well, regardless, tonight, a really snoozy reading of Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. I want to thank you all so much for an absolutely unbelievable year. If you're listening right now and you've been listening for a while, you are a reason that the Sleepy Podcast has grown as much as it has and it's listened to all over the world. And you've made it so that I can uh, travel while making radio that I want. So thank you so much. 
It's just really humbling to be where I am right now, reading Great Expectations in New Orleans to you. Thank you. I hope you have an absolutely wonderful new year and try to get some sleep. So now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Get real comfortable. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Close your eyes and let me read to you. My father's family name being Pirup, and my Christian name being Philip. My infant tongue could make of both names nothing longer or more explicit than Pip. So I called myself Pip and came to be called Pip. I give Pirup as my father's family name on the authority of his tombstone and my sister, Mrs. Joe Gargery, who married the blacksmith. As I never saw my father or my mother, I never saw any likeness of either of them, for their days were long before the days of photographs. My first fancies regarding what they were like were unreasonably derived from their tombstones. The shade of the letters on my father's gave me an odd idea that he was a square, stout, dark man with curly black hair, and the character and turn of the inscription also, Georgiana, wife of the above, I drew a childish conclusion that my mother was freckled and sickly. To five little stone lozenges, each about a foot and a half long, which were arranged in a neat row beside their grave and were sacred to the memory of five little brothers of mine who gave up trying to get a living exceedingly early in that universal struggle. I'm indebted for a belief that I religiously entertained that they had all been born on their backs with their hands in their trouser pockets and had never taken them out in this state of existence. Ours was the marsh country, down by the river within, as the river wound twenty miles of the sea. My first most vivid and broad impression of the identity of things seems to me to have been gained on a memorable raw afternoon towards evening. At such a time, I found out for certain that this bleak place, overgrown with nettles, was the churchyard, and that Philip Pira, late of this parish, and also Georgiana, wife of the above, were dead and buried, and that Alexander, Bartholomew, Abraham, Tobias, and Roger, infant children of the aforesaid, were also dead and buried and that the dark, flat wilderness beyond the churchyard intersected with dikes and mounds and gates with scattered cattle feeding on it was the marshes, and that the low, leaden line beyond was the river, and that the distant, savage lair from which the wind was rushing was the sea, and that the small bundle of shivers growing afraid of it all and beginning to cry was Pip. Hold your noise, cried a terrible voice, as a man started up 
from among the graves at the side of the church porch. Keep still, you little devil, or I'll cut your throat. A fearful man, all in coarse gray, with a great iron on his leg. A man with no hat, and with broken shoes, and with an old rag tied around his head. A man who had been soaked in water, and smothered in mud, and lamed by stones, and cut by flints, and stung by nettles, and torn by briars, who limped, and shivered, and glared, and growled, and whose teeth chattered in his head as he seized me by the chin. Oh, don't cut my throat, sir, I pleaded in terror. Pray, don't do it, sir. Tell us your name, said the man, quick. Pip, sir. Once more, said the man, staring at me. Give it mouth. Pip, Pip, sir. Show us where you live, said the man. Point out the place. I pointed to where our village lay, in the flat inshore among the alder trees and pollards, a mile or more from the church. The man, after looking at me for a moment, turned me upside down and emptied my pockets. There was nothing in them but a piece of bread. When the church came to itself, for he was so sudden and strong that he made it go head over heels before me, and I saw the steeple under my feet, when the church came to itself, I say, I was seated on a high tombstone, trembling while he ate the bread ravenously. You young dog, said the man, licking his lips, what fat cheeks you got. I believe they were fat, though I was at the time undersized for my years and not strong. Darn me if I couldn't eat him, said the man with a threatening shake of his head, and if I hadn't half a mind to it. I earnestly expressed my hope that he wouldn't, and held tighter to the tombstone on which he had put me, partly to keep myself on it, partly to keep myself from crying. Now looky here, said the man. Where's your mother? There, sir, said I. He started, made a short run, and stopped and looked over his shoulder. There, sir, I timidly explained. Also, Georgiana, that's my mother. Oh, said he, coming back, and is that your father along your mother? Yes, sir, said I, him too, late of this parish. Ha, he muttered then, considering. Who do you live with? Supposing you're kindly let to live, which I had made up my mind about. My sister, sir, Mrs. Joe Gargery, wife of Joe Gargery, the blacksmith, sir. Blacksmith, eh, said he, and looked down at his leg. After darkly looking at his leg and at me several times, he came closer to my tombstone took me by both arms and tilted me back as far as he could hold me so that his eyes looked most powerfully down into mine and mine looked most helplessly up into his. Now, looky here, he said, the question being whether you're to be let to live. You know what a file is. Yes, sir. 
They know what Whittles is. Yes, sir. After each question, he tilted me over a little more, so as to give me a greater sense of helplessness and danger. You get me a file, he tilted me again, and you get me Whittles, he tilted me again. You bring them both to me, he tilted me again, or I'll have your heart and liver out, he tilted me again. I was dreadfully frightened and so giddy that I clung to him with both hands and said, if you would kindly please let me upright, sir, perhaps I shouldn't be sick and perhaps I could attend more. He gave a most tremendous dip and roll so that the church jumped over its own weathercock. Then he held me by the arms in an upright position on the top of the stone and went on in these fearful terms. You bring me tomorrow morning early, that file and them whittles. You bring the lot to me, that old battery over yonder. You do it, and you never dare to say a word or dare to make a sign concerning your having seen such a person as me or any person some ever, and you shall be let to live. You fail, or you go for my words in any particular, no matter how small it is, and your heart and your liver shall be tore out, roasted and ate. Now, I ain't alone, as you may think I am. There's a young man hid with me, in comparison with which young man I am an angel. That young man hears the words I speak, That young man has a secret way peculiar to himself of getting at a boy and at his heart and at his liver. It is in vain for a boy to attempt to hide himself from that young man. The boy may lock his door, may be warm in bed, may tuck himself up, may draw the clothes over his head, may think himself comfortable and safe, but that young man will softly creep and creep his way to him and tear him open. I'm a-keeping that young man from harming of you at the present moment with great difficulty. I find it very hard to hold that young man off of your inside. Now, what do you say? I said that I would give him the file, that I would get him what broken bits of food I could, and I would come to him at the battery early in the morning. Say, Lord, strike you dead if you don't, said the man. I said so, and he took me down. Now he pursued. You remember what you've undertook, and you remember that young man, and you get home. Good good night, sir, I faltered. Much of that, said he, glancing about him over the cold, wet flat. I wish I was a frog or an eel. At the same time, he hugged his shuddering body in both his arms, clasping himself as if to hold himself together, and limped towards the low church wall. As I saw him go, picking his way among the nettles and among the brambles that bound the green mountains, he looked in my young eyes as if he were looting the hams of the dead people, stretching up cautiously out of their graves to get a twist upon his ankle and pull him in. When he came to the low church wall, he got over it like a man whose legs were numbed and stiff and then turned round to look for me. 
I saw him turning. I set my face towards home and made the best use of my legs. But presently I looked over my shoulder and saw him going on again towards the river, still hugging himself in both arms and picking his way with his sore feet among the great stones dropped into the marshes here and there for stepping places when the rains were heavy or the tide was in. The marshes were just long, black, horizontal line then as I stopped to look after him, and the river was just another horizontal line, not nearly so broad nor yet so black, and the sky was just a row of long, angry red lines and dense black lines intermixed. On the edge of the river, I could faintly make out the only two black things in all the prospect that seemed to be standing upright. One of these was the beacon by which the sailors steered, like an unhooped cask upon a pole, an ugly thing when you were near it. The other, I give it, with some chains hanging to it, which had once held a pirate. The man was limping on towards this ladder, as if he were the pirate come to life, and come down and going back to hook himself up again. It gave me a terrible turn when I thought so, and as I saw the cattle lifting their heads to gaze after him, I wondered whether they thought so too. I looked all around for the horrible young man and could see no signs of him, but now I was frightened again and ran home without stopping. My sister, Mrs. Joe Gargery, was more than twenty years older than I, and had established a great reputation with herself and the neighbors because she had brought me up by hand. Having at that time to find out for myself what the expression meant, and knowing her to have a hard and heavy hand, and to be much in the habit of laying it upon her husband as well as upon me, I suppose that Joe Gargery and I were both brought up by hand. She was not a good-looking woman, my sister, and I had a general impression that she must have made Joe Gargery marry her by hand. Joe was a fair man, with curls of flaxen hair on each side of his smooth face, and with eyes of such a very undecided blue that they seemed to have somehow got mixed with their own whites. He was a mild, good-natured, sweet-tempered, easy-going, foolish, dear fellow, a sort of Hercules in strength and also in weakness. My sister, Mrs. Joe, with black hair and eyes, had such a prevailing redness of skin that I sometimes used to wonder whether it was possible she washed herself with a nutmeg grater instead of soap. She was tall and bony, and almost always wore a coarse apron, fastened over her figure behind with two loops, and having a square impregnable bib in front that was stuck full of pins and needles. She made it a powerful merit in herself, and a strong reproach against Joe, that she wore this apron so much. Though I really see no reason why she should have worn it at all, why, if she did wear it at all, she would not have taken it off every day of her life. 
Joe's forge adjoined our house, which was a wooden house, as many of the dwellings in the country were, most of them at the time. When I ran home from the churchyard, the forge was shut up and Joe was sitting alone in the kitchen. Joe and I, being fellow sufferers and having confidence as such, Joe imparted a confidence to me the moment I raised the latch of the door and peeped in at him opposite to it, sitting in the chimney corner. Mrs. Joe has been out a dozen times looking for you, Pip, and she's out now, making it a baker's dozen. Is she? Yes, Pip, said Joe, and what's worse, she's got Tickler with her. At this dismal intelligence, I twisted the only button on my waistcoat round and round and looked in great depression at the fire. Tickler was a wax-ended piece of cane, worn smooth by collision with my tickled frame. She sought down, said Joe, and she got up, and she made a grab at Tickler, and she rampaged out. That's what she did, said Joe slowly clearing the fire between the lower bars of the poker and looking at it. She rampaged out, Pip. Has she been gone long, Joe? I always treated him as a larger species of child and as no more than my equal. Well, said Joe, glancing up at the Dutch clock. Seems it on the rampage. His last spell about five minutes, Pip. She's a coming. Get behind the door, old chap, and have the jack towel betwixt you. I took the advice. My sister, Mrs. Joe, throwing the door wide open and finding an obstruction behind it, immediately divined the cause and applied Tickler to its further investigation. She concluded by throwing me. I often served as a connubial missile at Joe, who, glad to get hold of me on any terms, passed me on into the chimney and quietly fenced me up there with his great leg. Where have you been, you young monkey? said Mrs. Joe, stamping her foot. Tell me directly what you've been doing to wear me away with fret and fright and worry, or I'd have you out of the corner if you was fifty pips and he was five hundred gargaries. I've only been to the churchyard, said I from my stool, crying and rubbing myself. Churchyard, repeated my sister. If it weren't for me, you'd have been to the churchyard long ago and stayed there. Who brought you up by hand? You did, said I. And why did I do it? I should like to know, exclaimed my sister. I whimper. I don't know. I don't, said my sister. I'd never do it again. I know that. I may truly say I've never had this apron of mine off since born you were. It's bad enough to be a blacksmith's wife and him a gargery without being your mother. My thoughts strayed from that question as I looked disconsolately at the fire. 
for the fugitive out in the marshes with the iron leg, the mysterious young man, the file, the food, and the dreadful pledge I was under to commit a larceny on those sheltering premises rose before me in the avenging coals. Ha, said Mrs. Joe, restoring Tickler to his station. Churchyard indeed. You may well say churchyard, you two. One of us, by the by, had not said it at all. You'll drive me to the churchyard betwixt you, one of these days, and, oh, a precious pair you'd be without me. As she applied herself to set the tea things, Joe peeped down at me over his leg, as if he were mentally casting me and himself up and calculating what kind of pair we practically should make under the grievous circumstances foreshadowed. After that, he sat feeling his right side flaxen curls and whisker, and following Mrs. Joe about with his blue eyes, as his manner always was at squally times. My sister had a trenchant way of cutting our bread and butter for us that never buried. First, with her left hand she jammed the loaf hard and fast against her bib, where it sometimes got a pin into it, and sometimes a needle, which we afterwards got into our mouths. Then she took some butter, not too much, on a knife, and spread it on the loaf, in an apothecary kind of way as if she were making a plaster, using both sides of the knife with a slapping dexterity and trimming and molding the butter off round the crust. Then she gave the knife a final smart wipe on the edge of the plaster and then sawed a very thick round off the loaf, which she finally, before separating from the loaf, hewed into two halves, of which Joe got one and I got the other. On the present occasion, though I was hungry, I dared not eat my slice. I felt that I must have something in reserve for my dreadful acquaintance and his ally, the still more dreadful young man. I knew Mrs. Joe's housekeeping to be of the strictest kind, and that my larcenous researches might find nothing available in the safe. Therefore, I resolved to put my hunk of bread and butter down the leg of my trousers. The effort of resolution necessary to the achievement of this purpose I found to be quite awful. It was as if I had to make up my mind to leap from the top of a high house or plunge into a great depth of water. And it was made more difficult by the unconscious Joe in our already mentioned Freemasonry as fellow sufferers and in his good-natured companionship with me. It was our evening habit to compare the way we bit through our slices by silently holding them up to each other's admiration now and then, which stimulated us to new exertions. Tonight, Joe several times invited me, by the display of his fast-diminishing slice, to enter upon our usual friendly competition but he found me each time with my yellow mug of tea on one knee and my untouched bread and butter on the other. At last I desperately considered that the thing I contemplated must be done 
and that had best be done in the least improbable manner consistent with the circumstances. I took advantage of a moment when Joe had just looked at me and got my bread and butter down my leg. Joe was evidently made uncomfortable by what he supposed to be my loss of appetite and took a thoughtful bite out of his slice, which he didn't seem to enjoy. He turned it about in his mouth much longer than usual, pondering over it a good deal, and after all gulped it down like a pill. He was about to take another bite, and had just got his head on one side for a good purchase on it when his eye fell on me and he saw that my bread and butter was gone. The wonder and consternation with which Joe stopped on the threshold of his bite and stared at me were too evident to escape my sister's observation. What's the matter now? said she smartly as she put down her cup. I say, you know, muttered Joe, shaking his head at me in a very serious remonstrance. Pip, old chap, you'll do yourself a mischief. It'll stick somewhere. You can't have chawed it, Pip. What's the matter now? Repeated my sister more sharply than before. If you can cough any trifle on it up, Pip, I'd recommend you do it, said Joe, all aghast. Manners is manners, but still you're else you're else. By this time, my sister was quite desperate, so she pounced on Joe, and taking him by the two whiskers, knocked his head for a little while against the wall behind him, while I sat in the corner, looking guiltily on. Now, perhaps you'll mention what's the matter, said my sister out of breath, you staring great stuck pig. Joe looked at her in a helpless way, then took a helpless bite and looked at me again. You know, Pip, said Joe solemnly, with his last bite in his cheek, and speaking in a confidential voice, as if we two were quite alone. You and me is always friends, and I'd be the last to tell upon you any time, but such a... He moved his chair, and looked about the floor between us, and then again at me, such a most uncommon bolt as that. Been bolting his food, has he? Cried my sister. You know, old chap, said Joe, looking at me, and not at Mrs. Joe, with his bite still in his cheek. I bolted myself when I was your age, frequent, and as a boy I've been among many bolters, but I never see your bolting equal yet, Pip. And it's a mercy you ain't bolted dead. My sister made a dive at me and fished me up by the hair, saying nothing more than the awful words, you come along and be dosed. Some medical beasts had revived tar water in those days as a fine medicine, and Mrs. Joe always kept a supply of it in the cupboard, having a belief in its virtues corresponding to its nastiness. At the best of times, so much of this elixir was administered to me as a choice restorative that I was unconscious of going about smelling like a new fence. 
On this particular evening, the urgency of my case demanded a pint of this mixture, which was poured down my throat for my greater comfort while Mrs. Joe held my head under her arm as a boot would be held in a boot jack. Joe got up with half a pint and was made to swallow that, much to his disturbance, as he sat slowly munching and meditating before the fire, before he had a turn. Judging from myself, I should say he certainly had a turn afterwards, if he had had none before. Conscience is a dreadful thing when it accuses man or boy, but when, in the case of a boy, that secret burden cooperates with another secret burden down the leg of his trousers, it is, as I can testify, a great punishment. The guilty knowledge that I was going to rob Mrs. Joe. I never thought I was going to rob Joe, for I never thought of any of the housekeeping property as his. United to the necessity of always keeping one hand on my bread and butter as I sat, or when I was ordered about the kitchen on any small errand, and almost drove me out of my mind. Then, as the marsh winds made the fire glow and flare, I thought I heard the voice outside of the man with the iron on his leg who had sworn me to secrecy, declaring that he couldn't and wouldn't starve until tomorrow, but must be fed now. At other times I thought, what if the young man, who was with so much difficulty restrained from brewing his hands in me, should yield to a constitutional impatience, or should mistake the time, and should think himself accredited to my heart and liver tonight, instead of tomorrow. If ever anybody's hair stood on end with terror, mine must have done so then, but perhaps nobody's ever did. It was Christmas Eve, and I had to stir the pudding for the next day with a copper stick from seven to eight by the Dutch clock. I stirred it with the load upon my leg, and that made me think afresh of the man with the load on his leg, and found the tendency of exercise to bring the bread and butter out at my ankle quite unmanageable. Happily, I slipped away and deposited that part of my conscience in my garret bedroom. Hark, said I, when I had done my stirring, and was taking a final warm in the chimney corner before being sent up to bed. Was that great guns, Joe? Ah, said Joe, there's another convict off. What does that mean, Joe, said I. Mrs. Joe, who always took explanations upon herself, said snappishly, escaped, escaped administering the definition like tar water. While Mrs. Joe sat with her head bending over her needlework, I put my mouth into the forms of saying to Joe, What's a convict? Joe put his mouth into the forms of returning such a highly elaborate answer that I could make out nothing of it but the single word, Pip. There was a convict off last night said Joe aloud, after sunset gone, and they fired warning of him, and now it appears they're firing warning of another. 
Who's firing? said I. Drat that boy, interposed my sister, frowning at me over her work. What a questioner he is. Ask no questions, and you'll be told no lies. It was not very polite to herself, I thought, to imply that I should be told lies by her, even if I did ask questions. But she never was polite, unless there was company. At this point, Joe greatly augmented my curiosity by taking the utmost pains to open his mouth very wide and to put into it a form of a word that looked to me like sulks. Therefore, I naturally pointed to Mrs. Joe and put my mouth into the form of saying, her. But Joe wouldn't hear of that at all, and again opened his mouth very wide and shook the form of a most emphatic word out of it. But I could make nothing of the word. Mrs. Joe, said I, as a last retort, I should like to know if you wouldn't much mind where the firing comes from. Lord bless the boy, exclaimed my sister, as if she hadn't quite meant that, but rather the contrary, from the hulks. Oh, said I, looking at Joe, hulks. Joe gave a reproachful cough, as much as to say, well, I told you so. And please, what's hulks, said I. That's the way with this boy, exclaimed my sister, pointing me out with her needle and thread and shaking her head at me. Answer him one question and I'll ask you a dozen directly. Hulks are prison ships, right across the meshes. We always use that name for marshes in our country. I wonder who is put into prison ships and why they're put in there, said I, in a general way, with quiet desperation. It was too much for Mrs. Joe, who immediately rose. I tell you what, young fellow, said she, I didn't bring you up by hand to badger people's lives out. It would be blame to me and not praise if I had. People are put in the hulks because they murder and because they rob and forge and do all sorts of bad and they always begin by asking questions. Now, you get along to bed. I was never allowed a candle to light me to bed and as I went upstairs in the dark with my head tingling from Mrs. Joe's thimble having played the tambourine upon it to accompany her last words, I felt fearfully sensible of the great convenience that the hulks were handy for me. I was clearly on my way there. I had begun by asking questions, and I was going to rob Mrs. Joe. Since that time, which is far enough away now, I have often thought that few people know what secrecy there is in the young under terror. No matter how unreasonable the terror so that it be terror. I was in mortal terror of the young man who wanted my heart and liver. I was in mortal terror of my interlocutor with iron leg. 
was in mortal terror of myself, from whom an awful promise had been extracted. I had no hope of deliverance through my all-powerful sister, who repulsed me at every turn. I am afraid to think of what I might have done on requirement in the secrecy of my terror. If I slept at all that night, it was only to imagine myself drifting down the river on the strong spring tide to the hulks, a ghostly pirate calling out to me through a speaking trumpet as I passed the gibbet station that I had better come ashore and be hanged there at once and not put it off. I was afraid to sleep, even if I had been inclined, for I knew that at the first faint dawn of morning I must rob the pantry. There was no doing it in the night, for there was no getting a light by easy friction then to have got one. I must have struck it out of flint and steel and have made a noise like the very pirate himself rattling his chains. As soon as the great black velvet pall outside my little window was shot with gray, I got up and went downstairs. Every board upon the way and every crack and every board calling after me, Stop, thief, and get up, Mrs. Joe. In the pantry, which was far more abundantly supplied than usual, owing to the season, I was very much alarmed by the hare hanging up by the heels, whom I rather thought I caught when my back was half-turned winking. I had no time for verification, no time for selection, no time for anything, for I had no time to spare. I stole some bread, some rind of cheese, about half a jar of mincemeat, which I tied up in my pocket handkerchief with my last night's slice, some brandy from a stone bottle, which I decanted into a glass bottle I had secretly used for making that intoxicating fluid, Spanish licorice water, up in my room, diluting the stone bottle from a jug in the kitchen cupboard, a meat bone with very little on it, and a beautiful round, compact pork pie. I was nearly going away without the pie, but I was tempted to mount upon a shell to look what it was that was put away so carefully in a covered earthenware dish in a corner, and I found it was the pie, and I took it and hoped that it was not intended for early use and would not be missed for some time. There was a door in the kitchen communicating with the forge. I unlocked and unbolted that door and got a file from among Joe's tools. Then I put the fastenings as I had found them, opened the door which I had entered when I ran home last night, shut it, and ran for the misty marshes. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.